This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by the Association of American Railroads. New technology creates a smarter and safer freight rail network that is ready to meet the needs of tomorrow. Visit AAR.org. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, good afternoon. This is Tolu Oloranipa with The Washington Post. Hi, this is Amy Britton calling from The Post. This is Peter Jameson from The Washington Post calling. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, November 13th. Today, what we've learned in the opening day of the public impeachment hearings and the first death of a Hong Kong protester sets off a new chain of events. So what was the mood going into this hearing? Well, I think the mood was one of anticipation. Everybody will come to order. Good morning, everyone. This is the first in a series of public hearings the committee will be holding as part of the House's impeachment inquiry. But to a large extent, I think people believe that we weren't going to really hear anything new. Shane Harris covers intelligence and national security for The Post. Good morning. My name is George Kent. Today we heard from George Kent, who is a deputy assistant secretary of state covering, among other countries, Ukraine. So he's responsible for Ukraine policy. I have served proudly as a nonpartisan career foreign service officer more than 27 years. And we also heard from William Bill Taylor. Thank you, Ambassador Taylor. Mr. Chairman, I'm appearing today at the committee's request. Who is the Chargé d'Affaires at our embassy in Kiev, Ukraine. He is the senior American diplomat at that embassy. I am not here to take one side or the other or to advocate for any particular outcome of these proceedings. We'd already read lengthy depositions by both the witnesses. We knew what they were going to say. Even before that, we had heard through sources much of what they said. So I think we were really bracing for the drama or the theatrics of it. Uh, It was going to be really uh, potentially quite impressive to hear these people speak for the first time and knowing that this is the first time that most Americans were going to spend time with what they had to say. So it was surprising that they made news instead. So I want to get to the news in a second. But before we even got to hear from Kent and Taylor, we had two pretty lengthy statements from Adam Schiff, the chair of the House Intelligence Committee, and Devin Nunes, the ranking member, the Republican. And that kind of set the tone for how they were going to pursue this hearing. What did they say and how did their statement strike you? The questions presented by this impeachment inquiry are whether President Trump sought to exploit that ally's vulnerability and invite Ukraine's interference in our elections, whether President Trump sought to condition official acts, such as a White House meeting or U.S. military assistance, on Ukraine's willingness to assist with two political investigations that would help his reelection campaign. And if President Trump did either, whether such an abuse of his power is compatible with the office of the presidency. Well, Adam Schiff started by, I think, with the presumption that what the president did in his approach to Ukraine was corrupt. The matter is as simple and as terrible as that. And then proceeded to really kind of cast this in terms of the propriety, the morality of what he did, and whether it was in the national interest or his personal interest, and kept it very focused on that argument. Our answer to these questions will affect not only the future of this presidency, but the future of the presidency itself and what kind of conduct or misconduct the American people may come to expect from their commander-in-chief. 
The Republican, Devin Nunes, who we know does not believe this was impeachable conduct and has been very outspoken about this, rather than trying to undermine so much the Democrats' case kind of point by point, he really kind of did like a shotgun blast. After the spectacular implosion of their Russia hoax on July 24th, in which they spent years denouncing any Republican who ever shook hands the Russian. Where he was saying, this isn't about, you know, President Trump's behavior and this phone call with President Zelensky. This is another sham by Democrats. And this is them trying to go after the president because they couldn't prove he was a Russian agent. On July 25th, they turned on a dime and now claim the real malfeasance is Republicans' dealings with Ukraine. If you were genuinely tuning into this for the first time as a, as a viewer, I had never seen any of this, I think you'd be very confused by what Devin Nunes was saying because it mm -hmm. was sort of a grab bag of accusations. In the blink of an eye, we're asked to simply forget about Democrats on this committee, falsely claiming they had more than circumstantial evidence of collusion. Some conspiracy theories. We should also forget about them trying to obtain nude pictures of Trump from Russian pranksters. Some longstanding Republican talking points as compared to shifts, which was very kind of like focused like an arrow. And as you mentioned, one of the first things that people picked up on from Bill Taylor's testimony was this piece of information that, that hadn't been in his deposition previously. We hadn't heard this before. A phone call that apparently one of Taylor's staffers had heard between President Trump and Gordon Sondland. Explain to me what this revelation was and why it could potentially be important. Yeah, this is very revelatory. So Bill Taylor told the committee that only this last Friday, so a few days ago, he had a conversation with a member of his team, a staffer evidently there at the embassy in Kiev, who told him about a lunch that he was at with Gordon Sondland back on July 26th after President Trump has that fateful phone call with President Zelensky of Ukraine. Gordon Sondland, of course, being the U.S. ambassador to the European Union and Trump's kind of designated point person on Ukraine. And according to Taylor, this staff member says, I was sitting there and heard Ambassador Sondland have a cell phone conversation with President Trump. In the presence of my staff at a restaurant... Ambassador Sondland called President Trump and told him of his meetings in Kiev. The member of my staff could hear President Trump on the phone asking Ambassador Sondland about the investigations. He was talking to him about how things were going in Ukraine. And he said President Trump was talking loudly enough that he could hear him through the earpiece of Sondland's phone. Mm -hmm. And he's hearing Trump say investigations. He's hearing the word investigations. Ambassador Sondland told President Trump the Ukrainians were ready to move forward. And after this phone call is over, the staff member kind of says, well, how did that go with Sondland? And Sondland expresses to the staffer. Ambassador Sondland responded that President Trump cares more about the investigations of Biden which Giuliani was pressing for. That the president cares more about investigations of Biden and the Democrats than he does policy with Ukraine or something to that effect. At the time I gave my deposition on October 22nd, I was not aware of this information. I'm including it here for completeness. So this is new information. What you have here now is potentially, at least according to Taylor's account of it, a fact witness to a conversation that Sundland is having with President Trump in which this witness says he can hear the president saying investigations 
And Sunderland then says the president cares more about the Bidens and investigations than he does Ukraine and the assistance to Ukraine. Because up until this point, what we had heard from Taylor and also from Kent was this idea that people around the president were were taking part in this pressure campaign. Uh, people like Rudy Giuliani, that they were trying to convince Ukraine to start these investigations in exchange for military aid, but that none of that directly implicates the president as the person who is directing this. And that this is one of the first pieces of evidence, at least from Taylor, that says President Trump was the one who wanted this and he said it out loud. Yeah, that's right. This would be somebody who's hearing it come from the mouth of the president. And you're absolutely right. So far, the witnesses have been able to say, well, I heard about the president's views from somewhere. I heard it through two people. This is that led Republicans to talk about there being hearsay or double hearsay or triple hearsay, they'll say sometimes. That's not the case here. This is somebody who at least he's on one end of the phone and can hear the president. And it very much undercuts this strategy all along by Republicans in the White House, which is to do everything they can to distance the president from the activity, even to the point where we've reported recently in the Post that there's one line of attack Republicans are considering, which is trying to say that Mick Mulvaney or maybe other people in the administration were doing all these things without the president even knowing. So essentially saying he was totally in the dark, which I think was never really that believable. But if there's a witness to this conversation only two days after the phone call that is the, you know, red hot center of this entire impeachment inquiry, that is going to be very compelling testimony. Uh, and we think that the committees are getting ready to depose that person now. And I wonder what that means for Sondland if that phone call was not a thing that he had mentioned in his initial deposition or even his addendum to his deposition that we've been hearing about. Yeah, Gordon Sondland is, uh, I would imagine, probably watching with great interest uh, that testimony by Ambassador Taylor, which, of course, Taylor only inserted into the record here just in recent days. Sunland has had a very problematic experience, let's say, before the impeachment investigators, and he is going to be called uh, in public hearings next week. Look, he was already going to have Democrats especially going after him about the inconsistencies or the omissions in his testimony. This will only add to that and I presume could become if not the focus of the entire interrogation of him, it'll be playing a very big part early on in their questioning. Were there other moments that you thought were interesting? Also, I thought with the Republican questioning, when it came time for their counsel to ask questions, you know, there was a lot of an effort to try and get the witnesses to comment on he was asserting President Trump's views on corruption might be. Or don't you think it's possible that President Trump was suspicious about corruption? You yourself are saying corruption is a problem. And making the case that, that corruption is rampant and widespread in Ukraine and therefore worth investigating. Absolutely. And George Kent even said that. I mean, he talked uh, quite quite clearly about the fact that corruption is a big problem and a lot of what U.S. efforts are designed to do are to try and strengthen the process of the rule of law. But the witnesses, are, I think, were very careful not to get drawn into sort of letting the Republican counsel put words in their mouth to sort of speak for the president. OK, so Hunter Biden's added to the board of Burisma. Now, do you think that creates a, a, a problem that Burisma may be adding people to its board for protection purposes? Uh, sir, I work for the government. I don't work in the corporate sector. And so 
I believe that companies build their boards uh, with a variety of reasons, uh, not only to promote their business plans. Well, that was particularly precarious for Kent because he had previously said that he was also concerned about the fact that Hunter Biden had taken up this position on the board of Burisma, this Ukrainian company, and that he'd said at the time that his concern was about the appearance of a conflict of interest, which is different from an actual concern about corruption in that situation. But but you could see the the counsel for the Republicans trying to get Kent to dig into the idea that maybe there was something there with Hunter Biden being on this board. Yeah, exactly. And it's important to remember that sometimes the appearance of conflict of interest is enough to create one. That's even according to ethics guidelines that government officials have to follow. Um, what's been interesting, though, is while that point is being brought up and it's happened with depositions of other witnesses, too, that we're going to hear from in the coming week or so, What Republicans have not really been able to do is put forward a lot of evidence that the president was deeply aware of the problem of corruption in Ukraine as being something endemic and systemic and no real evidence that said, you know, before I decide that we're going to give this money that Congress has appropriated, I want to get to the issues of corruption in Ukraine broadly speaking. He really, even on that phone call, only talks about the Bidens, about the energy company, and about this theory about Democrats. And when pressed on this, White House officials have been asked, well, can you point to any other areas where the president has expressed concern about giving U.S. aid to countries with a noted history of corruption? And they can't point to one. I feel like one of the big questions that people had going into these hearings was whether or not Democrats were going to be able to get these witnesses to explain things in a way that is actually understandable or leave leave regular people, people who don't follow the inner workings of the government, with a feeling of, oh, yeah, there was something wrong here. I wonder if you felt like these kinds of questions were able to achieve that, were able to to leave a regular person with a sense of like, oh, these, these guys were actually really concerned and they don't just have an axe to grind. Yeah, I think, look, I think they came across as people who were concerned. Um, Certainly, Republicans will look at this and think they come across as people also who objected to the president's policies or projected to what he was doing and will be defensive of the president that way. But to your point about if you were just comparing sort of the the line of attack that the Democrat and the Republican used, the Democrat one seemed a lot more effective insofar as he was asking the witnesses to talk about things that they saw or things that they said or heard or things that they felt. Whereas when the Republican counsel came up, he was trying to get them to comment on how other people may have felt. Well, don't you think that the president could see it this way? And you could just tell that they were uncomfortable trying to stand in someone else's head. But I do think if you watch this and you really sat there for you know a good two hours or so that it took, you probably would come away with a broad understanding of why these career people felt that what the president and Rudy Giuliani in particular were doing was counter to a U.S. interest as they saw it. And I think you would definitely have the feeling that, you know, these are people who can speak with authority to what is in the U.S. national security interest because they've been working to further that for decades. And it's interesting, even the way that they talked about Ukraine was different from what I would have expected. In their initial statements, they talked about Ukrainian freedom fighters kind of in the spirit of the American Revolution and that they're they're patriots and that they were really trying to reframe the way that we understand this. I thought it was interesting how both witnesses tried to 
frame this whole question around aid to Ukraine in terms of the strategic interests of the United States and the historical significance of it. During your testimony, Ambassador Taylor, uh, you also said that more Ukrainians would undoubtedly die without U.S. assistance. Why is that? Mr. Chairman, the security assistance that we provide it takes many forms. We give money, we give military assistance to this country in order to be a bulwark against Russia because we're trying to keep Russia from realizing its territorial and imperial ambitions, right? These weapons um, and this assistance, um, it allows the Ukrainian military to deter further incursions by the Russians uh, against their own, against Ukrainian territory. This is sort of a remnant of the Cold War struggle that is very much linked to what uh, you know American history in Europe has been for the better part of the past eight decades. And I thought that was very interesting and notable and might be the first time that people have really heard from diplomats who serve there on the front lines why it is that we're invested in Ukraine, why we're investing in Ukraine. That was notable. If that further incursion, further aggression... Um, were to take place, more Ukrainians would die. So it is a, de a deterrent effect that these weapons provide. One of the things that people probably will learn, and this is true of a lot of foreign service officers and career diplomats like Kent and Taylor, these are people who genuinely, deeply feel a sense of love of their own country and patriotism and loyalty. They didn't get into this for the money, <laughs> right? These are people who move every two to three years, who uproot their families. It's not unlike being in the military, but you just don't carry a weapon. And I think we also have these, these pictures of like diplomats as being these people who are sitting like, you know, in the, on the map and just moving the objects and the pieces around. Or, you know, they're flaming liberals who are just about, you know, like peace and kumbaya and trying to push all of that. These are very clear-eyed, often very deeply experienced people who really do have a sense of duty. And if we don't push back on that, on those violations, then that will continue. And that, Mr. Chairman, um, affects us. It's, it, it affects the world that we live in, that our children will grow up in, and our grandchildren. This affects the kind of world that we want to, to see abroad. This isn't just about being nice to people, and it isn't just about supporting freedom fighters because they're freedom fighters. It's about doing it because it's in the American interest to do so. That affects our national interest very directly. Ukraine is on the front line of that, of that conflict. Shane Harris is a national security reporter for The Post. This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by the Association of American Railroads. New technology creates a smarter and safer freight rail network that is ready to meet the needs of tomorrow. Visit AAR.org. And now, one more thing. A new chapter in the Hong Kong protests. The most surreal thing of all covering the Hong Kong protests has just been seeing such a quick deterioration of the situation and, and society in such a short period of time. My name is Shibani Matani. I am the Southeast Asia and Hong Kong correspondent for the Washington Post. So in Hong Kong, we've seen a real escalation of, of violence and, and protests since basically Friday. Friday was when 
there was the first sort of confirmed death of a young protester in sort of unclear circumstances, but he he appeared to have fallen from a multi-story parking lot after police had fired a bunch of tear gas in that area. It basically set off a chain of events that protesters were, were very angry against the police. This weekend saw a lot of really heated clashes and protesters had also called for a, for a general strike on Monday. So from from 6 a.m. in the morning, really, you saw a really, really heavy police presence all across Hong Kong. And on, on Monday morning, a traffic police officer shot an unarmed man at uh, close range and that, that really set off a, a cascade of events again that day. There was also violence from the side of the protesters who, who had set a man on fire who was allegedly pro-Beijing. And on Tuesday, things really came to a head at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Uh, essentially became uh, the battleground of some of the fiercest clashes we've seen so far in the past five months. It was unclear why exactly police were trying to go into the university. Basically, the students were trying to defend it and keep the police out. And it turned into a day of 12 hours of tear gas, Molotov cocktails. Barricades, clashes. You know, they they turned the gym essentially into a, a first aid station. And so what's happened in the wake of that now is that a lot of consulates are sort of pulling their students out of, of Hong Kong universities because they think there'll be a, a ripple effect. The Hong Kong protests have been going on since early June, so for about five months now. They initially started in opposition to a bill that would allow extraditions to mainland China, but they've since grown in scope, they've grown in size, and essentially fundamentally driven by the idea that Hong Kong should be self-governed. I think for China, it's an issue of just national pride and, and unity, right? I think they see this all as a house of cards. If they give Hong Kong more space, then what about Xinjiang? Then what about Tibet? Then what about Taiwan? So many analysts have said, I, I don't understand why Beijing doesn't just give in a little bit and just, you know, wall it off as a Hong Kong issue and, and sort of keep themselves away from it. But I think that they're very worried that, like, once they start opening the doors to concessions, you'll have an avalanche of them and they wouldn't be able to manage that. Shabani Matani is the Southeast Asia and Hong Kong correspondent for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. You can hear even more about today's impeachment inquiry testimony from the Post podcast, Can He Do That?, coming out later tonight. Host Allison Michaels and politics reporter Elise Viebeck will break down more about the hearings. You can find the show at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts or search for Can He Do That? on your podcast app. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.
This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by the Association of American Railroads. New technology creates a smarter and safer freight rail network that is ready to meet the needs of tomorrow. Visit AAR.org.